0: One of the things, you know, Chris, my other O'Brien from Coffee Cycle, one of the things I really appreciate about him, even though he's still a young roaster, is uh, he'll send me like, hey, I got a new Columbia coming out and the coffee notes that came with it say like these flavors. And he goes, but I'll call you or he's like, I'll email you in a few days with like the notes after we've gone through them and done it ourselves. Right. And right to me, I'm sure a lot of roasters do that, but it's a good for me it was like a good example of like, oh, they're doing the work. He he does the work.
1: Yeah, that kind of what you said, that that behind the scenes work to get a bean where it is before it's offered. Right. A lot of times people just copy my notes and I do wish they would write their own because I mean not only just doing the work, but like that learning process, you know, if you never, if you never take the time to pick something apart and actually put, you know, words to what you're feeling, then you're just never going to develop that skill. You're going to have to lean on someone else forever. So,
0: yeah, I do see like that, that I think I'm, I'm seeing what that process is like to dial in a coffee and it, it just makes it more uh, impactful for me coming from beer, like to see what, how many pounds of coffee they're roasting before he's willing to say, oh, I'm, this is where I want it to be. And and even then being willing to admit later down the road that like, you know what, like th- that first month, like I thought I had it, but I didn't really have it. It took me a while to get this coffee yeah. where it needs to go. And uh, that's just amazing to me, um, that skill. I'm Andrea. One of the hosts of the Voice of San Diego podcast. Every week, I get together with the other editors at Voice and explain the news that matters in San Diego. Elections, politics, law enforcement, big investigations, and some fun stuff. The great palm tree debate, ranked choice voting, bike lane mania. It's great journalism and a lot of fun. Every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's Voice of San Diego. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 13 of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. I'm Ryan Wolt, and this is the show where I bring you the stories of coffee professionals, entrepreneurship, and coffee education. I'm back this week with coffee expert Jared Hales. He's the green coffee buyer and co-founder of Hasea Coffee Source in Anaheim, California. If you are a regular listener, you may be wondering why we're doing two Coffee Smarter episodes in a row, and the answer is simple. I have a huge two-part interview on the way, featuring the 2022 U.S. coffee roasting champion, Nick Berardi. He's the head roaster at Moster Coffee Company, and the first episode of that will be dropping later this week. Today, Jared and I are going to talk about natural, washed, and honey processing of coffee. We've done processing episodes on this show before, but Jared walks us through the processes with more depth and specifics than the overviews we've previously had on this podcast. While you're listening today, check out at Roast West Coast on Instagram and Facebook, or subscribe to this show's newsletter on roastwestcoast.com. This might surprise you, but I've never actually made an Aeropress coffee at home before. I've drunk plenty of them elsewhere, but I've never actually made one. When I first moved to San Diego, I found this coffee and donuts bicycle ride that used to leave from the Patagonia store in Cardiff, California. On Sunday mornings, we'd meet up in the store courtyard, then meander off through the hills of Encinitas, and end up on a dirt trail overlooking the mountains. Elliot Reineke, the founder and owner of Steady State Roasting, would brew up Aeropress coffees for the group. He was selling small batch roasted coffee to family and friends at that point, and Steady State still didn't exist. I always thought the coffee tasted great, and the brewing process looked pretty cool, but I'm a creature of habit. And at home, I generally make myself a French press or a V60 pour-over, or for a brief time I was using a Chemex brewer and that felt like enough. Until now. Unfortunately, that ride no longer exists, but thankfully, Elliot is still making coffee and selling brewing equipment at Steady State Coffee Roasting in Carlsbad Village. I walked down and bought a new AeroPress and a bag of beans just the other day, and I'm going to break it out for the first time right now. While you're listening to this Coffee Smarter podcast, and hopefully drinking a damn fine coffee of your own, I'll be happily grinding and brewing and grinding and brewing and testing and brewing and grinding and drinking coffee and definitely annoying my better half with declarations of my love for my new brewer that will quickly evolve into obsession. I have a feeling that there are a lot of coffee people out there listening that totally get it. Enjoy this Coffee Smarter episode all about coffee processing featuring coffee expert Jared Hales of Hasea Coffee Source. Jared, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining again and having coffee and talking about coffee and sharing coffee knowledge. I left our last conversation about climate change feeling uplifted and just very positive about the world. I saw this thing where you're supposed to put out what you really want out of life. So that's what I'm doing. Beautiful. But I think it just shows that we are in like a period of uncertainty. And one of the things that 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 causes uh, that uncertainty is questions about how processes and operations will continue into the future. And, and I don't want to talk about how that's changing, but I'm hoping you can kind of walk us through some of the different types of coffee processing that have traditionally been they're What we see on the bag when we buy a bag and it says honey processed or washed or natural or something like that. I don't, don't mean to throw myself under the bus here, but I think for a long time I thought honey processing meant bees were involved. So I'm hoping you can clarify that. (laughs) Absolutely. But maybe let's start with what are the first, what are like maybe some of the top one, two, three processing methods that you're seeing come through as an importer and what are those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say the number one and two most popular processing That you see would be either washed or natural. Now I'll get into those, but um, first let me say, processing processing is really what happens to the coffee after it has been picked from the plant, right? And it is the steps between picking the coffee and basically exporting the coffee is what we would call processing.
0: So the somebody picks that. You know, puts in a basket. They get it back to wherever it's gonna go. It goes through a processing phase where something is happening to this cherry uh, with mm-hmm. the bean in it, and eventually it ends up in a burlap sack somewhere, put on a container.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, kind of diving into that, you know, we we usually start by sharing about the coffee cherry, right? The coffee cherry has a lot of layers to it. I think you may have uh, posted a drawing or-
0: a... I did. We recently did an episode on the coffee cherry with Chris. So this is a good, re- good uh, time for this episode.
1: Perfect. So listen to that and then come back here and <laughs> note that the coffee cherry has kind of an outer skin to it. Also, it's not a cherry, but we're going to just use the word cherry here, but it has an outer skin. Underneath that skin, there's a layer, uh, that we usually call pulp or mucilage. And this is where a lot of sugars are stored in the cherry. Underneath that layer, there is another layer called parchment and parchment is kind of like a peanut shell around the seed that gives it kind of, uh, another layer of protection, I guess this, this parchment layer. Under the parchment is the green seed and there are multiple layers to that as well, but we don't really need to get into that. The bean is a seed, right? It's actually not a bean, it's a seed. And so it has an embryo. It's a living thing, just trying to reproduce. So the plant naturally will drop the cherry it'll hit the ground and the seed or the embryo will start to eat sugars and it will produce a new plant, hopefully, right? That's the idea, at least before, if it happened without us picking it. So once the coffee has been picked, how that coffee goes from cherry to dry seed has a huge impact on the flavor of the coffee. So I mentioned washed process being one of the most common. And what's done in that processing method is the cherry is taken to a machine called a depulper. And the depulper kind of looks like, uh, most of them look like cheese graters. They're usually like a wheel with kind of a cheese grater looking metal to it. You should probably provide a photo here. And they'll have like a hopper or maybe you picture a grinder, like a coffee grinder but the purpose of these machines is to remove the skin from the parchment or from the rest of it right so when you put it through the deep pulper you will have the skin as a byproduct and you will have this coffee that is now just this pulp or mucilage layer that's kind of stuck to the parchment that Parchment coffee, that's usually what we call it now. That coffee will get put into a tank and filled with water. So, in this wash process, what happens in the water is yeast and bacteria, just in the air naturally, in the water, start to eat all the sugars that are in this mucilage layer. And this is fermentation, right? So, this This fermenting of natural sugars with natural yeast and bacteria create all sorts of flavors that end up in your final cup of coffee. So this step is usually pretty controlled uh, as far as like time and different elevations can take more or less time. Essentially colder temperatures can extend fermentation, warmer temperatures that process happens a lot faster
0: During this time, and just because I want to make sure I'm understanding a little bit, with the fermentation process, the reason they're controlling it is at the time is because they're trying to control how many of the sugars are being eaten and disappearing or or going into that coffee versus not.
1: It's more controlling the byproducts, the acids that are produced. So over-fermented products can create too much acetic acid, which is like vinegar, right? We don't want to drink vinegar. I don't think ever, although a little bit's okay, right? Uh, Maybe as a dipping sauce or something um, or something cooked with vinegar, right? But it's pretty rare that we just want to drink straight vinegar. So really we're trying to avoid over fermented flavors, which can happen by either going too long or too fast, right? And it's more common in in, um, like warmer climates that it kind of just runs away and you get that over-fermented taste. But ultimately at the end of this washing process, which for nice coffees will usually take about 12 to 36 hours sometimes, the mucilage is pretty much all looking spent and it's very loose now on top of the parchment. So that will actually be washed off completely with water. So the mucilage after being fermented is completely removed uh, with more water.
0: More water like uh, pressurized water? Like they're going to spray it and it's going to blow that fruit right off it? Or it's just going to soak and kind of drop off?
1: It's usually ran through moving water. More, That's the more traditional way. There's variations on this even, which I don't know if you want to get into, we can. It, it totally changes depending on how big the farm is. If it's a, like a cooperative sort of washing station or a small little, you know, washing tank on somebody's property, those are two, they're doing the same thing, but they look very different in, in practice. But most of the time it's run through moving water to remove the last of that mucilage. So at the end you have this wet parchment coffee that the parchment almost has a peanut shell uh, color to it as well, it's like a light tan. There is no more fruit, no more mucilage on it. And that goes and dries, that dries out. Drying is its own science as well. You You can dry straight on like concrete patios, which is really common, especially in Latin America. Uh, You can dry on like tarps on grass, which is probably a little bit better because it's cooler on the bottom. Uh, Or you can dry on raised beds that are made with like a mesh material so that there's airflow over and under the parchment coffee. Right. So even still, no matter how this is drying, the coffee should be agitated or turned over regularly so that the middle of the pile is drying at the same rate as the outside, right? So it's constantly being rotated for even drying.
0: And all of these these methods of drying involve the coffee essentially just sitting out. Is there also drying machines?
1: There are drying machines, yes. So we usually call them mechanical dryers. Depending on where which country you're in, they may have another word for it. Uh, And these look actually a lot like roasters. They look like big rotating drums and they have a method of loading them from the top and they have a method of uh, emptying them from the bottom. And a lot of times they're huge. They're usually the size of a bus, you know, because coffee, you you have to produce a lot of coffee (laughs) uh, at at the farm level. So... These mechanical dryers are sometimes even powered by burning that parchment coffee from last year as fuel or sometimes wood. And they'll maintain a temperature of like 90 to 100 degrees for the best results. And in a mechanical dryer, it might take three to five days to dry out the coffee. Whereas if you really control the thickness of the pile on like a raised bed, let's say, you can get the coffee to dry in more like 10 days, which is better for quality. Kind of low and slow in this whole process is better. So like cooler temperatures with longer fermentation tends to taste better than warmer temperatures with shorter fermentation. And then also on the drying side, to a certain extent, Coffee that takes 10 days to dry tends to taste better than coffee that takes three days to dry and has better shelf life, oddly, due to water activity and essentially that. So once the coffee is dry and parchment, it's ready to be milled and shipped. So usually it goes into bags for storage until it's purchased. And then when we buy it, they take the parchment off and put it in a bag to ship
0: it. What does milling mean?
1: Milling is essentially removing the parchment and then grading or separating out like bean size, defects, things like this. It'll go through like a sorting, a multi-stage sorting step. And it's sure. usually density, size, and color. So there are like uh, like camera eye machines that will kick out dark colored beans or we call them sour beans. And essentially just separating these obvious defects from the rest of the coffee.
0: Wow, that's very, uh, very cool. Uh, I was thinking more like when I used to drop like my nickels and my dimes and my quarters into a little change machine uh, as a kid. Same concept, but on a much simpler scale.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these machines are pretty cool to watch. I mean, it's taking a picture of basically every bean that passes through.
0: Wow, that's very impressive. This is
1: historically done by hand.
0: <laughs> this whole process, I'm just shaking my head is just amazing to me. Um, and it continues to be, even though I've like been learning about this now pretty intensely for two years. Okay. So that is our first, our first kind of type of processing, wash processing. What, what's our, what are we doing next? What's our next option?
1: So the, the next, at least as far as volume goes that we see the next largest kind of mover is natural process or some people call it dry process. And dry process is probably a better description of it because there's no water involved. The cherry gets picked and immediately gets put out to dry, just in the cherry, the full cherry. These usually need to be on raised beds because they have a tendency to grow mold a lot easier than the wash process, which no longer has any sugars on it when it's drying at least while it's drying it is also fermenting in this cherry right and the the final result the cherry will go from like a ruby red color to like a black raisin kind of looking color so like shrivels up it loses its its moisture it dries out and it ferments inside of this cherry It's done basically after that, the coffee, kind of the same story. It'll, it'll be stored in this dried cherry and until it's ordered. And then the mill will remove the dry cherry and the parchment at the same time. Uh, And then you'll have the green coffee inside of there. So those coffees tend to be a lot more fruity as they sat in that fruit for a long time and a little bit more syrupy, a little less clarity, a little bit more like muddy in their flavor. The natural process takes like three to four weeks to dry out. So the wash took like 10, 14 days for the good ones. Naturals take like three or four weeks. Not only do they take twice the time, but they have to be spread a lot more thin. So they require a lot more real estate to dry out, just in space and then the time to do them. So they are difficult in that way. They're, obviously, there's no equipment, but they still have challenges.
0: And you just answered all the questions I was going to ask, so that's great. <laughs> so we've got our, our washed and our, our natural or our dry. For whatever reason, I feel like I see honey processed a lot, but what would you say would be kind of another more common one that we're seeing in the craft industry?
1: So those two are probably the biggest movers as far as volume, but honey is another really popular and there are no bees involved. Other than the fact that the bees seem to like eating it.
0: <laughs>
1: essentially, the cherry goes through that same initial step as the washed processed coffee. It goes through that deep pulper machine. But rather than put this sticky mucilage-covered coffee into water, the coffee goes straight out to dry in its mucilage. When this happens, it looks like there's honey coating the parchment coffee. It's like oozy and thick. Uh, it's kind of got like the color of honey. It's kind of like a clear golden color. And, and the bees legitimately, they're all over it. They eat the sugar in it, right? But there is no honey involved and there are no bees involved in other than the fact that they like to eat it. And the honey processed coffee will dry without the outer shell of the fruit but with that mucilage. And so again, there's more fermentation happening here, but just in air, right? No water. And those coffees tend to take about two weeks to dry out and also should be done on raised beds for a similar reason as the, as the naturals. They can mold a little bit easier than the washed coffees. And the end result with the honey processed coffees, they tend to have like some of the syrupy sweetness or like the fruitiness of the naturals but they have a little bit more clarity um, and a little bit more brightness that you might see in like the wash coffees and they can really be anywhere in between on the spectrum there depending on how the depulper is actually calibrated kind of like a grind setting right you can be close or far apart on the depulper and you can leave more or less of the mucilage on the parchment so depending on how much you leave on there can have an impact on how the coffee is going to taste as far as like more fruit forward or more like a washed coffee
0: our conversation on our last show was about climate change and i'm thinking about this as you're talking are do we think that do we see trending towards some of these less water intensive processing methods because of that or do you anticipate that in the future
1: yeah, it's a good question. So climate change has had a couple impacts on processing. First, as you mentioned, is water conservation. So in the washed process, coffee, that water is toxic. That water cannot go back into a stream or something. And it had done that historically to the detriment of a lot of health problems for people who live downstream, right? So now that water is pretty regulated to be recycled. It needs to be recycled somehow. And it's gotten pretty efficient and the water can be recycled. It's usually done through evaporation. So it'll be put into like a pit that collects it. They'll actually add um, like a pH balancer. Essentially the water evaporates and leaves the solids behind that are would be harmful, right? However, in more like progressive countries like Costa Rica and Panama, uh, washing coffee like this is actually not allowed. You cannot waste water like this. And so they use other methods like um, kind of like pressure washers, essentially. Like, I mean, if you've used a pressure washer to wash a car, you can see it really does not leave very much water on the ground when you're done versus like a hose where you you filled the whole gutter up. Right. So it's kind of like a pressure washer that just sprays the mucilage off of the coffee. But what you're missing there is that fermentation step, which is really, unfortunately, it's kind of the secret to the best tasting coffee is this like long, cool temperature fermentation in water. You don't get it with with these kind of pressure washers. So in these countries, you tend to see more honey, natural or low water use uh, processing techniques. Interesting. Good question. Another way that it has affected processing, as I mentioned on the last our last conversation, as the line between wet season and dry season gets more and more blurry, it's Historically, the coffee is being dried in the dry season, but now there may be rain where there wouldn't normally be rain in months. There wouldn't normally be water, right? And so it's having an impact on how the coffee can actually dry. So like in Colombia, where it's been raining for two years, doing something like a natural process can be really difficult to get the coffee to actually dry when the humidity is 90, 100%.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. When I was in Ecuador and I went to visit a coffee farm and they, I I didn't know this at the time, to be honest, I was more excited about the chocolate part of the coffee farm, but they were, they were drying uh, coffee cherries out on these raised beds. So I've actually got a chance to see that. And while we were there, they were out there kind of rotating everything. It was a very small scale operation, but I would imagine that they were, the beds are outside. So you're kind of beholden, you know, they had like a little kind of screen shade type of thing over them, but a a good storm wouldn't, you know, it's still going to get through. It's not going to make it. Yeah. They
1: have to be covered up usually for rain. Um, but again, historically that wasn't an issue. It's only Mm -hmm. more recently where the rains are coming during the months that coffee should be drying. That that's more of a challenge. For really high quality coffees, an easy solution is like a greenhouse, but that costs money to build. You know, not everyone has those resources. So you see it more in like the higher end farms.
0: Before I let you go today, I want to ask you two things. One is if you see any sort of processing innovations that you think are kind of on the come up as far as popularity goes. And two, uh, and this might be more of a just a quick yes or no do you see a future in which coffee is produced indoors? And I ask that, and maybe that's something we just think about and talk about later, (laughs) but there are companies now that are trying to create sustainable farming techniques indoors. Uh, The East coast of the United States app harvest is one that's producing tomatoes, for example, indoors and is building the technology of indoor farming. Do we think coffee could get to that point because it is such a, a product that connects so many people and so many cultures and so many of us uh, want it every single day. And if we're having these negative impacts, I can't imagine that if there was a chance to eliminate some of these environmental factors, I'd have to think that some large companies would be jumping at that opportunity.
1: Yeah, actually, I have already thought about this and I've had discussions about it. I think it is a real possibility that coffee could be grown indoors You know, you see like some of the Nordic countries are way ahead on how they produce their vegetables, right? It's pretty much all indoors as it's frozen half the year. And they have it set up to be highly efficient and fairly automated as far as like nutrition requirements, right? And efficient on water. And so I think that there is a future there. And someone that's that actually brought this to my attention was a an agronomist, a professional agronomist who thought that this might be what the future of coffee looks like. And, you know, he would, he would be the one to, uh, to say so <laughs> he <laughs> has the qualifications. Right. So, yeah, I think that's an interesting idea. I think it'll just come down to costs, right. Like anything, but, if the supply is getting to the point where it's actually threatened and, you know, creating scarcity of coffee, then then yeah, I think that the cost could make sense.
0: I don't mean to make this one to one connection, but I feel like I've seen enough movies where they're growing weed underground. <laughs> I feel like at some point, I mean coffee is just as popular, if not more so, I would imagine, than weed. So I would think somebody's gonna try to figure it out at some point.
1: Yeah, yeah. I am i wouldn't be surprised if it's already out there and I just don't know about it.
0: Sure. I'm recalling um, maybe season two of this show in that chat with Jay Rusky up at Fringe. Uh, he said at the time he didn't see a near future in which this was happening, but they were already essentially digging trenches to plant things lower in the earth so that the wind, because the wind has been increasing through their region, mm. wouldn't affect the plants um, in, a, in a negative way which I thought was really interesting where it was still outside, still, you know, growing outside, but because of the extreme winds, they were either building berms or digging trenches or figuring out ways to prevent that from impacting the plants.
1: Right, right. To answer your other question, the the first part, really, there are definitely a lot of innovations happening just with processing specifically, not to mention cultivating like you're, you're talking about, but... I think historically coffee processing in quote, air quotes was more like, okay, let's get this cherry to its form that is exportable, right? But now I see people are looking at this processing more like how winemakers look at fermenting grapes. And actually wine, wine fermenters are being hired as like consultants to advise on certain fermentation practices. So we're seeing a lot of like crossover here between uh, wine industry and coffee, which wine has thousands of years on coffee as far as humans drinking it. So they've really got this kind of dialed in. So I think it's a good thing to borrow that knowledge, right? And and cross it over into coffee and apply it there. We're seeing a lot of like trends or, or yeah, I guess trendy, uh, processing techniques that I don't know if they're going to be around forever, but still the, the knowledge that's gained from them only helps, you know, the, the long-term sort of outlook on coffee. And, and the idea here is to really get a cup of coffee that tastes as good as it could be. Right. And, and processing or fermentation can be a pathway to that.
0: Very cool. Before we go, we are in uh, kind of the beginning stages of summer. What are you drinking in the summertime? Do you notice that your coffee drinking changes seasonally?
1: Honestly, no. <laughs> I just had this conversation uh, earlier today with a friend. I drink hot coffee when it's 100 degrees out. <laughs> For real. I, I I'm not a cold coffee drinker.
0: Yeah, I'm the same way, but I have talked to some people who kind of like put their hot coffee away for the summer and move into iced or something else. And I just kind of like, I don't understand. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. And I want to I haven't done this before and I should I should do it every episode. But as an importer, anybody that you're working with right now that we should check out,
1: you know, when you that. Just first that comes to mind, I just visited a really good friend. I worked with him before at my previous job, and he moved up to Napa to start his own coffee roasting company. And he is just about to open his first retail store after about three years going at it with the roasting. So I'm really excited for him. His coffee is fantastic. And that is May Sayer Coffee Roasters up in Napa, California. Check him out.
0: We'll check them out for sure. Um, Jared, thank you for coming back. Thank you for answering my emails and not hanging up on me when I say, hey, can you come (laughs) spend all this time with me? Uh, I really appreciate it, man.
1: No problem. Thanks for the opportunity to share and be here and discuss. I like it.
0: Okay, to recap. No bees are hurt during honey processing of coffee. In fact, the bees are pretty stoked about all of the sweet sugary coffee beans dripping with the oozing fruit of the coffee cherry that has been deskinned and partially depulped and left to dry with mucilage still hanging onto the bean. The bean, that I'll remind you, is actually a seed. The drying phase of honey processing generally takes about 2 weeks with the beans being left out on raised beds made of screen so that air can get to them from the top and the bottom. In an ideal world, coffees processed this way will end up combining the fruity, syrupy sweetness associated with naturally processed coffees and the clean clarity of a washed processed coffee. Each coffee farm may have a unique variant to their processing. That takes us back to our last episode about climate change, where we talked about changes in the traditional seasonal weather patterns that then impact when coffees can be processed naturally. Naturally processed coffees are left outside to dry, and when the dry and rainy seasons begin to shift, that changes the entire operation. Jared mentioned that he had spoken with an agronomist, and in the moment I nodded and smiled at him, but I wasn't quite sure I remembered what an agronomist did, so I looked it up. An agronomist studies the art of cultivating the ground and how the application of the various soil and plant sciences can impact soil management and crop production. Basically, they are dirt scientists, which seems like a pretty valuable skill to have on any coffee farm. Thanks to Jared for helping get us coffee smarter. Hasea serves as a green coffee resource for fledgling and established coffee roasters, and they offer regular coffee education classes covering a wide range of topics like beginning roasting, brewing, and coffee history. Check out all of their offerings online at HaseaCoffee.com or follow at Hasea Coffee Source on Instagram. You can find both of those links in this show's notes and on roastwestcoast.com, which is where you can go to sign up for the newsletter. When you subscribe, I'll send this podcast to your email every single week. It's easy to enter in that email, and then after you do, you'll never miss an episode of this show. Or help this podcast grow, like our new favorite listener Aaron did earlier this week, by choosing one of the paid subscription options. You'll get access to the Bean Journal. And your subscription and our sponsors are the reason that I get to keep this program going every week. Those roast industry partners include Moster Coffee Company, Steady State Coffee Roasting, Camp Coffee Company, Ignite Coffee Company, Ascend Roasters, Coffee Cycle Roasting, First Light Whiskey, Morea Coffee, Cape Horn Coffee Importers, who are fine green coffee suppliers as well, and Café La Their operator, Alden Hazuri, and I had a cup of coffee together the other day, He's also the head roaster and founder of Crossings Coffee Roasters, and will be one of the featured coffee smarter experts next season. Links to all of those awesome businesses, subscriptions, and anything else I mentioned on the show today can be found in this episode's show notes or online at roastwestcoast.com. Thank you all for listening and for supporting this show, and this show's sponsors. I really appreciate that you're reading the newsletter and you're out there drinking good cups of coffee. This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is, was, has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this episode has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity and coffee to make it through the day. For those of you going out into the world to drink a cup of coffee this week, please always remember to tip your barista, and be sure to drink good coffee. this is the part of the show where we wait for the train. You will never hear this part. Or maybe I'll put it into the end of the show. I don't know. And there's a truck. I like beer. Hey everyone, if you like the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, you might also appreciate the I Like Beer the Podcast. Listening to these guys is like being a fly on the wall of the pub with a few of your favorite mates having a pint. These professional beer appreciators have plenty of stories to share on everything from the mating habits of penguins to their behind-the-scenes brewery experiences. Check out the I Like Beer the Podcast wherever you are listening to this show about coffee, or head to ilikebeerthepodcast.com.